In the wake of Me Too, Time's Up, and the growing list of public figures who have been called out for sexual assault and misconduct, it can seem like exciting, spontaneous, and satisfying sex is an unattainable ideal. That sex is too deeply buried beneath misinformation, violence, and shame to be enjoyed anymore. And yet, I know from personal experience that that is not true. Despite the odds, people are having great sex all the time, but they don't always get the chance to talk about it. Well, today, listeners, I'm here to change that. My name is Robin, and this is The Peak. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Peak, the talk show about what makes good sex good. My name is Robin, and today I am joined with Catherine Vela Bogan, a clinical research coordinator at the Rhode Island Hospital. I came across Catherine and her work last fall on social media when she shared a post based on her research about false reporting rates of sexual violence, and she and her post went viral. Um, since then, I've been following her on social media, and I've just been really impressed with her professional and personal dedication to sex positivity and health. So I am very pleased to introduce you all, Catherine Vellabogan. Hello there. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited. And do you prefer Catherine or Kat? What should I call you? Um, I'm definitely a Katie. Feel free to call me Katie. Great. Awesome. So I'll just dive right in with the professional questions I have for you. Certainly. So as a clinical research coordinator for the Rhode Island Hospital, what does your work entail? So quite a bit. Um, I work as a project coordinator in a healthy relationship study, specifically with middle school students. So I work with seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade students on um, dating violence prevention programming and sexual assault prevention programming. I'm very, very fortunate to be a part of this work. It's really rare that researchers get the opportunity to do work on sexual violence prevention with students who are in middle school. Um, but before I started working in my current lab, I had experience as well in pediatric violence prevention at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School. That was the first job I had out of undergrad, um, and I worked with homeless and foster youth. I worked with sexual minority women who had been victims of intimate partner violence and were coming to terms with their trauma and um, learning how it had impacted their sex lives. Um, I've had some really incredible opportunities working with unaccompanied refugee minors from Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala. That was when I was still in undergrad. Um, so a key focus of mine in an area that I'm really passionate about is the way that trauma intersects with other aspects of marginalization and across lines of marginalization and intersectionality um, and the way that our sex lives happen after the fact. So as a result of our multiple marginalizations or as a result of our trauma and a newfound passion of mine is reintegrating the concept of sexual agency, pleasure and embodiment into trauma survivors sex lives. So though I'm not able to do that work as much with the middle and high school students that I work with, um, I'm able to do it a lot more through my activism, which has been really exciting to me. Um, and my job has also allowed me to work peripherally with the U.S. military, which has been really exciting, and with some college populations as well. So I've had quite the range um, of groups I've had the privilege of working with. Wow. That is 
all so extremely fascinating. So um, I wrote down a couple of questions. What are some of the prevention methods that you teach to, um, or I suppose, I guess, trauma prevention methods that you teach Mm -hmm. to the middle schoolers? So we do what's called um, a social norms based intervention, and we try to correct misperceptions that students have about um, the values and behaviors that are occurring in their community. So essentially, um, we'll survey students about their own experiences, whether they've experienced different forms of victimization like bullying or sexual harassment, cyberbullying, sexual assault. Um, and then we'll ask them about their perpetration history, if they've ever perpetrated this against other folks. And then we ask them about their attitudes, values, and beliefs. So, um, and we ask them this about themselves and about their peers. So an example question is, you know, what percent of peers do you think are bothered when they hear the words gay and lesbian used in a mean way? And students will frequently say, I think 50% of my peers are bothered by this. And then we pose the same question to the students themselves in the survey. Of, are you bothered when you hear these, <clears throat> when you hear these terms used in a mean way? And 98% of students at the schools will say, yes, I really am bothered. And so there's this huge gap that the students are experiencing between the values that they perceive their peers to hold and the values that they themselves hold. And our hope is that by teaching the students that they actually have values that are shared within their communities that are really healthy and positive, we will um, reduce perpetration because folks who are perpetrating will get the message that their classmates are really not okay with this behavior, even if people haven't intervened in the past, even if no one has told them, like, look, I'm really uncomfortable with this. Seeing this data um, that we've collected in their surveys might change some of their behaviors. So social norms is really the umbrella term that this sort of intervention falls under. And then we're also really fortunate to have the flexibility to provide whatever sort of technical assistance or support the schools request. So we're in seven schools across Rhode Island right now. Um, and if a school says, you know, we had an incident last week with sexual harassment in the hallway between an eighth grade boy and an eighth grade girl, and we really want to communicate to the student body that this is not okay, our team is able to develop skits or empathy exercises or other similar intervention materials that specifically target not only the example of that incident, but this specific community based on feedback from the educators, go into the school and do a skit during assembly or spend time in the eighth grade advisory classrooms and talk to the students about why sexual harassment is a problem, why we take it seriously, um, and how to form these really healthy and pro-social relationships instead. So that was a very long answer um, to a very good question. So it thank was very you. fascinating. I'm curious, have y'all been able to collect any results about um, the effect these interventions have at the schools? So we are in the middle of our intervention. We're just about to collect six-month follow-up surveys from year two, and then we have baseline and six-month follow-up still to go on year three. So we won't be able to assess the effectiveness of the social norms intervention until the end of next year when we're able to look at our longitudinal data across these three years. But we're very optimistic based on the feedback we've received from the educators we work with and from the students that our presence in the schools is making a difference in how students talk about dating, relationships, and health. Wow. So will these results and um, the outlines for interventions that y'all have created be available for other schools to use? 
So our hope is at the end of the program, if we're able to analyze our data and find that it worked, that it was effective in reducing victimization and reducing perpetration, um, we'll be manualizing the program with day one of Rhode Island. They're the rape crisis center that our research team partners with. Um, they've really designed this intervention and we're here as research staff to assess whether or not it's effective. Um, so our team in day one will collaborate to create a manual that can be distributed to schools throughout the United States and even abroad um, to be utilized in school. And our, our hope is that this program will be able to be explained clearly enough and succinctly enough that schools that receive the manual are able to roll it out completely independently without the help of um, a preventionist or an education specialist or basically a research technician present. That school counselors and social workers um, and administrative staff can take on a project like this and just witness the behavior changes and the attitude changes within their communities. Wow. Yeah. That's stellar. <laughs> Thank you oh, so man. much. I'm, I love my job very, very much. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to do this work. Well, I'm excited that you have the opportunity to do it too, because it's really important. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So I'm also curious about um, the work you mentioned about reintegrating pleasure for survivors of sexual violence. Could you talk a bit about mm -hmm. that? So I'm actually looking into um, putting together a grant on what current interventions exist on improving the sex lives of survivors post-trauma, if interventions exist that have been measured to be effective. Um, and I'm hoping that this grant will allow me to interact directly with survivors, talk about their trauma histories in a very safe environment, um, talk about what their sex lives looked like before and after the trauma. Of course, if someone experienced childhood trauma or early youth, early youth trauma, that might be a bit of a different conversation. But what we're hoping to discover um, is that survivors do have sex lives after trauma. Frequently, survivors have um, very passionate, loving, and exciting sex life after trauma. We just never hear about that. And there are, of course, coping mechanisms that people use in order to establish these positive and healthy sex lives after trauma. And we want to be able to identify what those coping mechanisms are, whether they're pro-social and positive coping, um, things like going to therapy, having, you know, DBT or CBT work done, um, talking openly with their partner about their boundaries or more avoidant coping, things like um, using substances before sex, dissociating during sex just so that they can get it over with, etc., um, and seeing kind of how we can enhance the pro-social and positive coping mechanisms and kind of manualize these as well, be able to um, create an intervention that survivors can use to improve their capacity to have these really exciting sex lives in which they experience embodiment, in which they're not dissociated. They get to stay in the room. They get to stay in themselves as they're experiencing sex. So this is, you know, a 10 year plan essentially for what mm -hmm. a grant proposal and the collection of research could possibly look like the findings that we may, um, that we can sort of anticipate and we may be proven wrong, but goal findings, um, and then what we can do with them in the aftermath. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Um, so what can you tell me about the work you did with mind with migrants as an undergrad student? So this is actually, um, this is a story that I have very mixed feelings about now that I've 
become more entrenched in the activist scene. And I understand intersectionality, white privilege, and the white savior complex a lot better than I did when I was in undergrad. Um, I did a research project the summer between my junior and senior year of college on um, body positivity and um, essentially body positivity and feminism with a group of unaccompanied refugee minors. So folks who were under 18, who were in the United States without a legal guardian present. And the majority of um, young women in the class were from Honduras, Mexico, and Guatemala. And before the class started, um, I was told that they would there would be a translator present for these sessions. And then about a week before, um, I discovered that the translator was no longer available. And of course, most of these young women spoke Spanish and in fact, different dialects of Spanish. So I contacted one of the Spanish professors at my university. I had already taken uh, three and a half years of Spanish and I essentially said, I need a crash course on public health, gender and sexuality um, vocabulary. Can we Skype every day this week? Um, and she accommodated me very generously. But when I was going into this class, I was really not keeping in mind how my language barriers, how my inability to speak to them and to meet them where they were at was going to impact the messages that I was able to communicate. The incredible cultural differences between Honduras, Mexico, Guatemala, and the United States in terms of body positivity, sexuality, topics that um, young women and girls are allowed to talk about, feel comfortable talking about, um, feel as though they have access to. And so I was very much swooping in as this like sex positive, pretty radical white feminist who spoke mostly English, trying to engage young women from just a vastly different cultural background. So the work was exciting. I was able to have conversations with these young women that otherwise may not have occurred. But I also wasn't able to sort of debrief with them after the fact. I don't know how they experienced those sessions. I don't know what they got out of it. And having the knowledge that I do now, I think that process would have looked very, very different. I, I look back on that decision and I cringe a little bit because I came in as such a, you know, I'm going to rescue these young women who sort of don't know which conversations they're missing without the cultural lens of Katie, you don't get to rescue anyone. Like this is not your role. These young women do not need your rescuing. They have support from folks who are not you, who can meet them where they're at, who do speak their language, who do understand their culture. Um, and really what you should be doing here is not approaching with an effort to teach or desire to teach. You should be approaching with a desire to learn. So I came into that class with a lot more answers and not a lot of questions. And I think that was my very fatal flaw. So as much as I would love to design sex positive programming for everyone, um, I definitely lacked the cultural knowledge and understanding that I would have needed to do that effectively. So it was a learning experience for me. I hope that it was an empowering experience for them. I did get some positive feedback after the fact, but I still wish I had approached it in a very different way. I understand what you mean, and I really appreciate you verbalizing um, the ways in which your perspective on that project has changed over time as you've um, developed a better understanding of intersectionality and social justice. Um, I know that I've certainly gone through a lot of growth over the years, um, and even through doing this show. Anyway, I totally feel you about 
learning from past misunderstandings, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely approach from a place of ignorance and feel very strongly now that, um, I could have had not only a much more effective and empowering impact, but I could have learned so much more from these young women who had such rich life experiences and so much wisdom and knowledge to share with me that I was not in the position at the time to recognize was not either able or willing to recognize. So I'm eager to be able to explore much more intersectional research now that I have an activist framing and now that I understand intersectionality a bit better, because not only do I think I'll be more effective as a researcher, as potentially a clinician, as someone who can support survivors of trauma, but it will give me the opportunity to learn from so many passionate people who have so much to teach me. Wow. Um, <laughs> cool. Thank you. So I want to shift a little bit into uh, talking about your career as an activist, um, because that also intersects with the professional, quote unquote, work that you do. Um, so how did you get your start in activism? Was there a pivotal moment where you got woke and started getting more involved? Interesting. Question. Or was it more of a process? I think it has been a process. I don't know if I really had an aha moment. Um, I do know that the election of Donald Trump was deeply jarring, not only for me, but also for um, folks who work in my field to see someone who had professed to perpetration be elected to the highest office in the land. So I did some kind of borderline personal professional activism and wrote uh, several book chapters on how the election of Donald Trump constituted essentially betrayal trauma for sexual assault survivors living in the United States. So seeing an institution that we're supposed to love, celebrate and respect, like the office of the presidency, be occupied by a perpetrator was sort of a mass invalidation of the very painful sexual experiences that so many folks in our society have experienced. Um, so that sparked a lot more of my stand up, stand out, take to the streets, um, participate in sit-ins, participate in walkouts. I was just angry, um, angry, disillusioned, disenchanted, and felt very, very much like this can either exhaust me. I can, you know, sit in my room and cry and be heartbroken about the pain that women and other gender victims are experiencing across the United States, or it can galvanize me and it can motivate me. And I feel very fortunate to have had the energy to be galvanized and motivated as opposed to um, just exhausted and defeated. So it's been a process over the last several years, figuring out what the protest scene looks like for me, um, what issues I'm really passionate about. And this has really been a significant change at first I was looking to identify what are my issues, and I think that was problematic. And as I've grown as an activist, I've recognized or come to recognize that the issues are my issues. If there is a community of marginalized folks who say, this is a problem, I am at risk, I am experiencing harm, I am experiencing degradation, um, institutions are doing things to reduce my quality of life, it is my job as an activist, it is my job as someone who is justice oriented and wants to see the world change in positive ways to make that an issue that I'm passionate about, to learn what I can, um, to demonstrate in whatever ways I am able. Um, and that has been 
a real, I feel, growth trajectory that I was not as comfortable doing when I first started out. And now I just feel very strongly that no matter who is at risk, no matter who is being harmed, if there's a community in need, my body needs to be out on the street. Um, mm-hmm. So not so much a moment, much more of a <laughs> rapid fire progression. Very cool. Um, so what does activism mean to you? Like what things do you do in your life that you consider activism? That is a great question. So I'm also Jewish. Um, and in Judaism, there's this concept called Tikkun Olam, which is essentially to heal the world and how you need to, um, use... Can you repeat that phrase? The sound blurped out a little and I want to hear what sure. you said. Sure. So the concept is tikkun olam, and it means to heal the world. Um, and that's a big aspect of Judaism in which folks essentially dedicate themselves to to service, to um, healing the culture, to creating safer spaces for, quote unquote, our fellow men, um, our fellow humans, I should say. Um, and for me, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? I just want to make sure I'm answering the correct one my question was um what really what does activism mean to you and what actions do you take that you perceive as activism in your own life okay so i think activism is the idea of advocating for folks in need but that can also be advocating for yourself and advocacy is not quiet Activism for me has been an experience of learning how to be a proactive bystander, of stepping in when I see something that makes me uncomfortable or that potentially harms other people. Um, It is very easy and a lot more comfortable to stay silent in the face of injustice. People do it all the time. Um, And for me, when I was younger, I was very eager to please, very much a teacher's pet, um, wanted to fit the mold, wanted to be liked. And I remember as a 17-year-old making fun of my friends who were feminists, rolling my eyes, thinking this is never going to be the position that I occupy. I don't understand. They just need the attention. Um, and it was safer and it was more comfortable. And people, the people that I was spending time with liked me more for my passivity. And developing my activist sense has meant being comfortable with being uncomfortable and being comfortable with making others uncomfortable, taking up space in a way that society frequently tells women, especially young women, especially small and femme young women, especially small femme cis white young women, not to do. It tells us often to be quiet and to be passive. And so breaking that mold has been hugely liberating for me um, and has allowed me to embrace what I feel is the activist sense of taking care of the world, not in a savior way, but in a this is what is best for all of us. I'm not trying to rescue other people. I am trying to be a part of a team whose goal is liberation. Very cool. Thank you. Long answer to another brief question. I appreciate your time. <laughs> nah, they're supposed to be long answers. That's why I set aside a long time for this. Perfect. Or they're not supposed to be long, but they are welcome to be long. All right. Wonderful. So 
Who are some activists, living or dead, who inspire you? Oh, this is such a great question. Angela Davis. Um, oh, gosh. Malcolm X. I just started reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I'm completely blown away. Gloria Ansaldúa, who's a feminist theorist and a Chicago I'm a feminist who writes a lot about what it's like to live on the border of multiple identities. And um, though I am white and cisgender and a femme woman, I do. I'm also bisexual. And a lot of her work on um, navigating competing identities speaks very deeply to the way I've come to terms with my sexuality and experience my sexuality. So definitely Gloria Anzaldúa for listeners. If you haven't read her, her book Borderlands is an absolute triumph. Oh, there are so many bell hooks. I've been reading a ton of bell hooks. I really appreciate um, men in the field of gender liberation. Jackson Katz is a really important voice to me. Um, Wow, there are so many. I could go on. <laughs> Maya Angelou. A lot of them are going to be kind of literary theorists, people who have established genres of activist writing. Uh, Toni Morrison. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I could I could just list, but I don't <laughs> want to uh, take up a ton of time just naming names. I do want to call out a few folks in my activist community who are doing such important work, sure, um, educating it. the community, educating the people. So one of my um, good friends who I actually met at an acapella show in college, his name is Hunter Lamar, um, and he is a social justice and particularly a racial justice activist who does remarkable emotional labor on Instagram. He posts Instagram stories that share information about black liberation and intersectional liberation and the amount of effort he puts in each day to teach his community in a really accessible way and to teach folks who are unfamiliar with the topic materials is deeply inspiring. He has been such a motivating and energizing presence in terms of um, my digital activist community. So Hunter, if you're listening, I love you. Keep doing what you're doing. You're killing the game. Um, yeah. So that, that, that I think is a really significant call out for me. And Dejana James, um, who went to high school with my younger sister, who's also a social justice activist who uses her social media platforms to share um, details about her life and what liberation means to her as a black woman and an activist. Um, she has taken a lot of time and care in educating folks um, and sharing what it means to be unapologetic um, and to completely disregard respectability politics when the community is constantly trying to police the expressions of black women. So the two of them, I think, are my in terms of folks that I actually have in my life that I get to interact with regularly are two of my biggest activist inspirations for sure. Wonderful. We'll have to definitely drop links to all of the people you just mentioned so that listeners Absolutely. can seek them out. Yes. Um, and one more question about activism specifically. So what advice do you have to give to people who want to be more involved in activism but are maybe intimidated or don't know where to start? 
just start. I think the process of getting engaged is in and of itself so inspiring that once you take that first step, it's hard to step back. It becomes almost like an addictive process. It certainly has for me. I would also say we do exist in call-out culture, and in this instance, I'm using call-out in a bit of a negative way, where when folks misstep, they can be policed so um, vehemently that it can be really intimidating to stay in the movement. When you are policed, learn to say thank you, especially if it is coming from a community that is more marginalized than you are. So for me as a cis white woman um, and someone who can pass as heterosexual and someone who is not visibly Jewish, when people who have multiple marginalizations and intersecting marginalizations call me out, at first I got very, very defensive. It was hard for me to hear criticism. It was hard for me to acknowledge that I was coming from a place of privilege. Um, and I have learned to say thank you, and that learning has been a process. Because really what that call-out means is that person trusts your intellect enough to know that you can learn and trusts you enough as someone who's not going to respond with violence or vitriol that they feel that you are teachable. So be teachable, especially if you are coming from a position of privilege. It is your job to be teachable in the movement. So don't let those call-outs intimidate you they're going to happen if you approach them with gratitude you will build some of the strongest relationships in the movement that you possibly can um, and i would also advise to learn which self-care practices work for you practice them early and practice them often um, when i first joined activism quote unquote when i first became part of what i consider the movement um, I did not know what my self-care practices were, and I burned out fast and hard. I was exhausted. I had a lot of sort of vulnerability factors. I cried easily. Um, I was, you know, stressed and anxious. And then I discovered um, daily meditation, yoga, and cooking for myself. Um, gardening has also been really big for me when it is spring, summer, fall, and there's access to sunshine, walking outside and just being in the sun is something that I really need to lift my spirits and keep me feeling kind of warm and grounded. So figuring out what those skills are for you and utilizing them is what is going to sustain you in the movement. If you're not taking care of yourself, you cannot take care of other people. It is impossible to pour from an empty glass. So being self-sustaining it is not selfish. It is not narcissistic. It is not self-serving. It is what will allow you to sustain the movement as well. So do what you need to do to feel happy, safe, and comfortable. That will give you the energy to push forward with your activism. I love that. And I'd also like to throw out there something I've seen different people on the internet uh, remind others of recently is that self-care cool. isn't always... Um, as like wonderful as gardening and doing yoga, sometimes it's doing your taxes, making yourself yep. go to bed at like 9 p.m. even if you yep. don't want to, eating responsibly, however that looks like for you, and doing the stuff that might be boring or hard so that you can have the energy and inner light to want to continue with the good work you do. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and I would say there are some parts of self-care that seem really really counterintuitive. So for me saying no, when I'm tired, saying no to plans, saying no to a late night out um, has been a really important skill for me to gain. And then speaking specifically to survivors of sexual violence, because I know that y'all are listening to this podcast. Shout out. I love you. I'm really glad you're here. Um, Tactile self-care has been really important for me. So things like when I'm feeling anxious in my body or frightened of my body or am experiencing some form of PTSD, putting on body lotion, sitting in a tub, doing something that allows me to physically connect to my body that forces me to experience my own touch in a really grounding way um, has helped me build a really loving and compassionate relationship with my body that I didn't have before um, joining the activist scene and establishing my self-care habits here. So for the survivors who are listening, if you're not currently doing some tactile oriented self-care, I really encourage you to try. At first, it might feel a little uncomfortable. Um, it might feel a little scary, but when you do settle into it and when you do get used to it, it can help you rebuild empathy with your own body and your own somatic experiences. So have at it. It's good for you. I really like that recommendation. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I clearly think about these things a lot, all the time. It's good. That's why I invited you. <laughs> so you. I would like to ask about um, your experience going viral last fall. Um, I will include a link in the episode description um, to your post that went viral. But just real quick for the listeners, last September, um, Katie released a um a social media post about rates of false reporting of sexual violence in the light of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing and the testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Um, it went viral. It attracted a lot of positive attention. It also attracted the attention of dangerous people, including Nazis. Um, mm -hmm. And I would love to hear about what that experience was like for you. Absolutely. So I think the, the Nazi attraction I'll expand upon because I think there's multiple, there are certainly multiple things that attracted their attention to me, not only this viral post, but I was present at a lot of um, rallies around that same time. So that certainly garnered some attention as well. For me, I think the most impactful piece of sharing that post, I did not expect it to go viral. I was thrilled and delighted that people were talking about how rare false reporting was and the way that um, rates of false reporting can be manufactured to look higher than they actually are. But I certainly didn't expect it to go viral. I might have changed my own language a bit in the post if I had known that it was going to um, become so popular. But I also think that some of my vehemence, aka my swearing, was what helped it resonate with people so much. It wasn't written in purely academic language. It was just a pissed off young woman who really wanted to share the knowledge that she had. Um, I think so I, too, not to interrupt, yeah. but I just, no, everyone fine. was angry. Everyone yeah. was just like pissed off and hurting. So seeing someone who was also pissed off and hurting, but had some freaking data and the research <laughs> to back it up was remarkably just like impressive and empowering. And I think that's part of why your post went viral. Sorry, I interrupted. 
I just no, wanted to no, say that's that. Fine. And and I do agree. I think I think having having the data to back up my rage was really impactful for people, um, resonated with people. I also feel really strongly that at the end of my post, I included some um, a brief letter, I would say, to survivors of sexual violence, talking about the sacrifices that they make to report, how challenging it is. Um, I was struck very deeply by Christine Blasey Ford's testimony um, and how to have to air her trauma to the nation um, and then to be publicly mocked and criticized for doing so. So I definitely felt the need to write essentially a love letter to survivors. And what I did not expect, not only was for the post to go viral, but I had an inbox full within 24 hours, an inbox full of disclosures from people who had either never disclosed, had not received resources, didn't know who to turn to, didn't feel that their social networks were supportive enough. So I was writing back to survivors every five minutes for the next several days of, I believe you, I support you, what can I do for you, what do you need, here are your local resources. I'm so deeply honored by you sharing your story with me. I'm so impressed by your bravery to come forward and share this with a stranger. Like This shows such not only desire to seek care, um, but self-validation, acceptance of your own narrative, desire to share your story. Um, so I wound up connecting with some incredibly passionate, beautiful, moving survivors of violence who didn't feel that they had other outlets besides a young woman on the internet who had spoken passionately about survivor justice. Um, and of course I got the flip side of the coin, which was the slew of people who didn't believe my data, who disagreed with me, who wanted to, quote unquote, play devil's advocate. And I did not have the emotional energy to deal with those people. I compiled a list of my citations. Um, and when people wrote back saying, well, I don't believe you or, well, I saw this one paper that was written in 1970, blah, blah, blah. Um, that false reporting rates of 41 percent, that paper for folks who are listening and know which one I'm talking about, that paper's methodology has been debunked. It has been debunked by every paper on false reporting that has come out since. Um, ignore it. It's I believe the first author is Canon. Ignore any data that you see on false reporting with the author Canon, K-A-N-I-N. The methodology is not sound. Um, but. I compiled my list of citations um, and I just sent them out to anyone who expressed any disbelief. I'm like, fine, if you don't believe me, read these 25 papers that I've read over the last several weeks and get back to me on whether it's changed your mind. Um, and then for the survivors, I also compiled a message listing um, national resources, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network hotline, um, online resources. So there's a 24-7 chat for the National Sexual Assault Resource Center where you can reach out to their advocates and they'll respond to you anytime. So I made sure that I was responding with resources. Um, and then as we continue through this conversation, something that I do really want to do on this podcast is delineate what constitutes a pro-social and helpful reaction to survivors and what, though well-intended, is actually a negative reaction to survivor disclosures. So I'm very fortunate to have been trained in how to react positively to disclosures of violence. That's one of the key areas of my research and what I've written on and what I've had the absolute joy and privilege of publishing on. But a lot of people don't know what the evidence-based responses are. Um, so Sarah Allman, who's a researcher in criminology in Chicago, she's a brilliant academic. Um, I've had the joy of collaborating with her as well. 
she coined the Social Reactions Questionnaire in 2000, which asks survivors of sexual violence who have disclosed which reactions they received to their disclosure. And then she was able to categorize what constituted a positive reaction, and positive reaction was defined by something that had a protective impact on survivor health outcomes, so reducing depression, reducing dissociation, reducing PTSD, etc., versus negative reactions, which exacerbate those negative outcomes and symptoms. Positive reactions are things like expressing validation and belief. So I believe you, I believe that this happened as you say it did, really important. Um, giving tangible aid. So do you want to get a sexual assault evidence collection kit done? If so, can I drive you to the hospital? Do you need someone to bring you food? Let me cook for you this week. Making sure that in terms of tangible resources, the survivor has what they need to cope in the aftermath of um, either victimization or disclosure, because disclosure can be very re-traumatizing. Informational aid. So um, these are some self, this is a list of self-care practices that I found online recently, or this is a clinician in the area who I know does DBT or CBT or other evidence-based work. Let me put you in touch with a therapist, or let me put you in touch with the local rape crisis center. Um, Emotional support. So saying thank you for sharing your story. You're really brave to have come forward. I'm really honored by your disclosure. Um, those are really the big positive reactions. Validation, belief, tangible aid, informational aid, emotional support. Negative responses are things like, and these are really common and people are well intended when they do them, but they're still problematic. Um, responding in an egocentric way. So a way that centers your experience as opposed to the survivor's experience. Examples of this are things like, wow, I'm so mad at the perpetrator. Like, I want to go beat this person up, which means not only does the survivor then have to deal with your feelings and take care of you when they're already experiencing emotional distress um, and they have to, like, calm you, but it takes the attention away from their own experience. Maybe they're not angry at the perpetrator. Maybe they're sad. Maybe they're feeling betrayed. Maybe they're feeling hurt. So those egocentric responses really pivot the conversation away from the needs of the survivor um, in a way that can be really invalidating. Trying to distract the survivor and say like, oh, it really seems like this, um, like this conversation is upsetting you. Let's talk about something else. What distracting reactions do is they silence that survivor's disclosure process. Um, they tell them to talk about something else and they communicate that you don't want to hear what they have to say. So even though you might think, wow, this person seems really distressed, don't say, let's talk about something else. Say, I want to hear everything that you have to share with me. Like, I am eager to be here to support you. Feel free to take breaks if you need them. I know that this conversation will likely be distressing. It validates the fact that they're upset and doesn't tell them to shut up in any way. It gives them the space to take a break when they need to and to continue when they're ready. Um, of course, expressions of disbelief, um, asking too many questions, things like, what were you wearing? Why were you at that party? Were you drinking? Asking questions about context. Did you have a sexual history with that person? Wasn't he your boyfriend? Wasn't she your partner, et cetera, et cetera. All problem questions. Um, I would advise against asking questions when someone discloses. Just let them speak until they're finished and let them know that you're willing to have them speak until they're finished. Um, so those the big ones that I find that people perceive to be well-intended are the distraction and egocentric responses. Um, those are both problem responses. I'm certain that people listening will have done them. You didn't know at the time. <laughs> now you know what to do instead. 
that's that's my spiel on how to respond to survivors who disclose. It's one of my favorite things to to teach folks about, and I think it's really important in improving like population level public health. I think so too. What a helpful thing for you to share. Thank you. Absolutely delighted to talk about it. It is one of my it is one of my favorite uh, skill sets to share with people. I do think it will have a significant impact when folks receive a disclosure. And I've actually had the joy of um, providing this information to high school and college students and asking them afterwards, do you feel better prepared now if one of your friends tells you that they've experienced some form of sexual violence? Do you feel like you know better than before this conversation what to do? And 100% of the time, people have said yes. Like, I had no idea what to say. And now I have a script outline, which is really helpful. I believe you. I support you. Thank you for sharing your story. What do you need from me? Done. Very cool. Very useful. I'm so glad. Yes. Okay. I would like to now dive into the personal questions, if you're ready. Yeah. Wonderful. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I am too. I'm glad you're excited. So would you please tell us about your sexual identity and your sexual personality? Ooh, what a fabulous question. Um, I identify as both bisexual and pansexual. I haven't really been able to decide on a single label that suits me. My favorite umbrella term is queer. Um, I feel very strongly about my queer slash bi slash pan identity. I would say in terms of my identity with sexual expression. I'm fairly submissive. I'm like definitely cute and subby and enjoy that experience <laughs> quite a bit, which is interesting given that I do, of course, I mean, we talked about this a lot during the first half of the interview. I do bring trauma experience to the table. Um, it does impact my sex life. I think at first, when I first started exploring sex again in the aftermaths of my tra traumas, um, I couldn't conceptualize how sex could be fun anymore. And it has been such an empowering and joyful and delightful experience to figure out that I get to have a fun sex life and I get to have a fun sex life where I just experience the things that I like, um, without trying to pin certain things as, well, you only enjoy this because of your trauma. I played that game for a few years. That game is helpful to no one. So Again, for the survivors who are listening, what you like is normal. As long as it's not causing you pain in the aftermath, as long as it's not emotionally triggering or re-traumatizing, you're able to come back to earth and enjoy your experience. It's fine. Like what you like. Don't yuck your own yum. It's exhausting. So I would say that's my sexual orientation identity and my expression identity. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So... Um, if you would, please describe your first time or a significant early sexual experience. So interesting. So I really conceptualize myself as having two first times. Okay. Um, because I'm bisexual, I've had a first time with women and I had a first time with men. My first time with a woman, or I suppose at the time a young woman, I was 14 and I had been dating um, my first love, her name was Lindsay. Um, <laughs> we had been dating for several years and then she left for, um, for an art school um, states away. So she came home for a visit one summer and we had sex for the first time in my older sister's bed, <laughs> which I still feel 
horrible about. I'm so sorry, Julie. I'm so, so sorry. Um, she, she knows she's guilted me about this for many years. Uh, and it was sweet and awkward and fumbly. And like, we loved each other so much and definitely had no idea what we were doing. And I remember that a lot more as like an emotionally connected experience of like, I can't so deeply for this person. We've been dating on and off for, it was almost three years at that point. Um, and it was pretty radical at the time for, for us to be queer when I was, when I was 14, I mean, don't ask, don't tell was, was still a thing and gay marriage wasn't legal. Like my coming out process was, was fairly fraught. And so sex with another young woman or girl was pretty revolutionary to me and felt like a, not a reclaiming, but just a claiming of my identity in a very tangible way. Um, it was lovely. It was awkward. We had no idea what we were doing. I loved her so, so much. Aww. And then my, fr- yeah, she's, yeah, she was such a dreamboat. Um, and then <laughs> my first time with a man was with my high school boyfriend. It was my senior year. Um, I, yeah, I didn't lose my virginity as we conceptualized sort of heteronormative virginity until I was 17. And that experience, even though it was sweet, was, I think, fraught with a lot more misinformation and a lot more fear. And I believe that this is an experience that a lot of uh, cisgender women who have sex with cisgender men have as well. One of the benefits I think to having my first time with a young woman is I wasn't familiar with porn really at that point. I hadn't been socialized or didn't have the scripting for what queer sex was quote unquote supposed to look like. So we got to just sort of do what we wanted to do. But my first time with a man felt very scripted. Removal of clothing, some kissing, very little foreplay, not really any other stuff, and then just penetration, which of course hurt because no no foreplay. You don't really have time to, to adjust or to get into it. And we've normalized in our society the concept that the first time, quote unquote, first time for young women who are having sex with men is that it's supposed to hurt or that it's normal for it to hurt. As a sex educator now, as someone who's really familiar with the literature on sex and pleasure, I know that that is not the case, but I did not know when I was 17. And so I had the experience of losing my virginity as very much like, I love this person, I want to do this, but having to grit my teeth through it because it was really painful and feeling a little vulnerable afterwards because experiencing genital pain during sex is scary. Um, And we haven't undone that myth of sex hurts for the first time with as much vehemence as we need to. So those were my really two different experiences having like this lovely, sweet, awkward, unscripted sexual experience with women and having this very scripted, still very caring. My partner was very gentle with me. He was and is a very good man, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what to expect. And it was a little frightening and, after that, I was like, oh, I think I like sex with women better than I like sex with men. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, if this is this is not what I thought it would be. Because everyone, you know, you see Hollywood movies and people expect the, you know, sweeping love affair and the passionate embrace and mm-hmm. everyone has fun. And 
that's not what sex looks like. We're, we're not taught as a culture that having good sex is sometimes hard. Mm-hmm. Like you're contending with a lot of scripting. You're contending with a lot of stereotypes that incorporate performance instead of pleasure, performance as a replacement for pleasure. Um, and it doesn't leave a lot of space to explore our bodies in an authentic way. So I'm really grateful I've had the chance to do that now, but certainly did not in my first sexual experience with a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that your first experience with a man is probably very relatable. I've heard a lot of similar stories. And yeah. I think that the way you describe your first time with a young woman is so charming. Um, <laughs> what do you... Yeah. What do you think made those experiences so different? Was it the gender dynamics of being with a girl or a boy? Was it just the individuals were you with that you were with? Was it um, you internalizing over the next three years more of the pornographic tradition of quote unquote straight sex? What do you think? I I would say high key all of the above. Um, I think for me and Lindsay, there was such a deep emotional connection. We had been together for on and off for about three years. We knew each other really, really well. And she was also my best friend. So the idea of being afraid of intimacy with her was just so foreign. And we were able to kind of experiment and figure it out as we went without the pressure of pornographic scripting, without the pressure of heteronormative sexual scripts and just let's do what feels nice. And I really care about you and I don't want to hurt you. And we're going to see how this goes and having that freedom to play made it a much more just like loving and silly experience. At least for me, I don't want to speak to her experience, but for me, it was really delightful um, and then over the next several years, yeah, I, I came of age as a high school student. Um, I developed really young and really early. So I got my period and I was 10 years old and I was one of the first people in my school to, to have breasts. I was someone who was quote unquote, like dress coded. I would get in trouble for my clothes quite frequently. Um, and I got the reputation of slut that was undeserved and unearned. I had not, I hadn't had sex with a man until I was 17, but the stereotype within my school was that because I had breasts, because I had this very womanly body early, I must have been having sex early as well, um, which was what well, was the case with Lindsay. <laughs> I mean, I, I did have sex at 14, but I wasn't like going around seducing all the innocent 15 year old boys. Um, <laughs> and I think having that reputation forced me to internalize a lot of shame. And then around that same time, I was at boarding school. I was 15 years old and I experienced um, not my first sexual assault, but a sexual assault by one of the maintenance men who worked at my school. And rather than face the potential liability um, of what it would mean for the, for the school to have to openly address a sexual assault on their campus, um, I was asked to withdraw from the school. So I left my boarding school at 15 after experiencing one of the most severe sexual traumas of my life. Um, I had been, I'd never seen a penis before when this happened. I had never had like a sexual interaction with a man in an adult way. 
It was absolutely horrifying. It was absolutely traumatizing. And then I was punished for it in a very concrete way. I loved my school. I loved what I was learning. I loved my community. Uh, And then I had to go back to public school. And by the time I returned to my public school, there had been um, newspaper articles about the assault um, that had very much cast aspersions as to whether or not it had actually happened, um, had made claims that I had recanted my accusation, which I never did. Um, So essentially all of the things that Christine Blasey Ford faced as an adult, I got to face as a 15-year-old switching schools after a pretty significant trauma. Um, and I came back to public school with the nickname janitor job, <laughs> which you can look it up on Urban Dictionary. There's literally an Urban Dictionary entry for it. Um, so over the next several years, I experienced a lot of severe sexual shaming by my peers. Um, and by the time I was ready to have consensual sex with an adult man, I think the idea of sex with a man being something that I was supposed to enjoy as opposed to something that was done to me for them just didn't make sense to me. I wasn't ready to sort of reclaim sexual agency. I didn't know what that meant. Um, so for me, having sex that was painful and kind of confusing with men just felt normal because I associated sexuality and sexual experience with men as painful and confusing, and something to be punished for. Um, I experimented with this early partner with some really severe forms of of BDSM, like long before I knew what safe BDSM play was, um, just as a way to, I think, normalize the relationship between sex and pain that I had established in my mind at that point, um, And wound up seeing, not this first partner who was lovely, but wound up seeing a series of like kind of not very nice men as I established that norm within my sex life of like, if I have sex with women, it gets to be this loving, playful, exciting, warm experience. And if I have sex with men, it's me kind of lending them my body until they're done with it. And then I get it back when it's over. And I had one experience with a college boyfriend that just threw me for a loop. And I was like, I'm done with this. I'm done being the body in the room. I want to be a person in the room. I'm done like going away and going grocery shopping. When I have sex with men, I want to be able to experience it and have fun and play just the way that I do with women. And so my sexual revolution as it were occurred between I'd say 21 to now it's definitely still happening. Um, but the socialization in my post-trauma years from like 15 to 17 of that assault experience, the pretty severe punishment and all the blaming from my peers made it very hard for me to feel like sex with men was something that I had the right to enjoy or that I was supposed to enjoy. And changing that narrative has been huge and lovely and wonderful. And I wish all survivors of violence the opportunity to do what in the past four years I have been able to do. It has warmed my relationship with my body. It has warmed my relationship with other women who can frequently identify with this experience. And I just feel like has allowed the creation of this really sex positive culture, not only within myself, like a culture that I feel that I live, but one that I can communicate really openly to other people. 
That was, again, a really long answer. No, it was wonderful. Thank you so much for your openness. And I mean, as you know, as we've been saying for this whole conversation, it takes a lot of courage to speak openly about sexual trauma. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. I appreciate the validation. I am. It is my honor to give it to you. Um, (laughs) So towards the end, you started leaning into talking about your sexual revolution, which you say started when you were mm-hmm. about 21. You are now mm-hmm. um, in your mid-20s. Yes, so would 25. you, would, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Would you continue to talk about that a bit and talk about um, some of the sexual highlights of this revolution? Absolutely. Um, so I think when I was about 21, I was with a partner um, and we very much fell into And this is not his fault. I think this is just what society does to heterosexual cisgender couples. We fell very much into the script of sex begins when the cisgender man gets aroused, ends after ejaculation, not a lot of room for foreplay, not a lot of room for toy play, not a lot of room for women's sexual pleasure, especially given that only 8 to 11% of cisgender women can reliably orgasm from penetration. The vast majority of cisgender women require clitoral stimulation in order to experience an orgasm. That is knowledge I did not have. And I remember just reaching a point where I started to advocate for my own orgasms. And I was like, we've had sex for you know the last few weeks. And of the times we've had sex, I've been able to orgasm once. This feels unfair to me. And I was feeling this like growing resentment and the resentment at some point transitioned to like this seething rage of, I know that this is an injustice. I know that this is a pleasure injustice. I've heard the term pleasure reparations a lot in the last few years as I've been diving into the literature on sexual agency, which is that um, women are denied authentic sexual pleasure experiences for so long that it's like we're owed a backlog of orgasms by the time we reach our mid-20s. It's like we've missed out on so much of the fun we're supposed to be having during sex. So that concept just became rooted and I've had progressively more I feel empowered conversations with partners since then where at first it was like no I would I would like to maybe try this today. So advocating for myself to receive oral was sort of a starting point of like, we've done all all these other things, but we haven't done this. So let's do this today Um, to suggesting that like, there are certain things I don't want to experience, like being fingered really hard. I'm like, no, like that's, that's not really something that works for me because so few women can orgasm from penetration. So like, that's not doing what I need it to do. So sort of changing the script that had become established um, incorporating toy use has been really huge. And I think for me, like the peak empowerment moment, um, in my recent sexual history was I started seeing this really awesome guy and our sex life was good and fun and I was really enjoying it. Um, but we were still sort of struggling to address the orgasm gap within our relationship. And so I made what I thought was like, I didn't know how this was going to be taken. I was like, is this a weird power move? How is this going to go over? Um, and I bought myself a vibrator and shipped it to his apartment with a little note, like this was on my wish list. And so were you like something cute. I was like, Oh, please, please soften the blow of this. Like, I don't want it to be 
to come across as offensive. And he received the the package and like wrote me this really nice me- really nice message of like, wow, this is one of the most thoughtful things anyone has ever done. <laughs> me and I was like phew that went over so much better than I expected it to um but reclaiming my sexual pleasure and orgasms as something that I have control over by doing something as tangible as not only making sure that I have a vibrator but making sure that it's at his apartment and accessible when I want to use it um has been a really interesting transition for me from being pretty sexually passive and just kind of lending my body out and dissociating and like coming back when sex was over to like being able to be in the room the whole time, being able to not only be in the room, but really advocate for what I want. Um, and it didn't come naturally. I, of course had a lot of experience in therapy. I have like a wonderful DBT trained clinician who does a lot of work with me on sexual embodiment. I've read a lot of books recently on sex and pleasure. So Becoming Clitorate is one that I really um, recommend. That's by Lori Mintz. There's also Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski and um, Healing Sex by Stacey Hines. Those are the three that I've read in the last, I'd say, eight months that have been really eye-opening for me in terms of what myths were told about sex and what joyful, empowered sex can actually look like. I, I so recommend, like all listeners, please buy these books. Healing Sex is specifically designed for or um, victims of trauma and childhood sexual abuse. And I found it to be hugely liberating and really validating. And then I think another really joyful sexual experience for me was my last um, long-term partner. I was a lot more open with him than I had been with previous partners about the extent of my trauma and the way it impacted my embodiment. I didn't tell my partners before that I dissociated. I didn't tell the people I was with, like, I'm really not in the room for sex and I would like to be. And this um, ex was the first person I was like, no, I'm really not in the room for sex. And with you, like, I care about you enough and I want us to share this enough that I want to be. And he was so loving and so willing to be there. Like, every step of the way to check in if like my facial expression changed, like, are you still here with me? Do you need to come back? Um, to, um, listen to feedback from like my therapist of things that I might need during sex in order to stay present. And I remember we had sex one day and it was the first time in my adult life that I had been able to be in the room the entire time during sex. But like, I didn't leave once. I wasn't like off grocery shopping. I wasn't off running errands. I wasn't in like this really tiny space in the back of my head. I was actually in my body the whole time. And it was like something out of a movie, like those slow motion sex scenes where you just see like the shots of their backs and their hands and whatever. It was so beautiful and so moving. And like, I absolutely, he cried afterwards. I was like, I can't do anything. And he took very good care of me. And I think for a trauma survivor to be able to have a partner who hears them, who bears witness for an experience like that, and who really recognizes that like the sexual needs of trauma survivors are going to be different than the needs of people who have an experienced trauma is so important. And if for the survivors who are listening, if you're currently silencing yourself or policing yourself out of sharing these needs from a partner, not only are you doing yourself a disservice, and this is not blaming, I've been there, I did that for six years, like I feel it, 
it's not going to allow you to have the sort of sex life that you deserve and that you want. And it's possible that sharing that with your partner and trusting them can build a foundation of trust and communication. That means they get to experience something really new. They get to experience vulnerability with a partner as well. And I think that for me, that was certainly a really moving day, but the partner that I had at the time also expressed multiple times throughout the duration of our relationship that that meant a lot to him to be, to be able to be there for me for that experience and know that like, he's the partner who I felt safe enough with to express that need. So shout out, you know, I'm not going to name him, but like, you know who you are. Thanks a bunch. You were a champ. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> um, and again, shout out to the person that I'm currently seeing for responding so well to the vibrator move. Oh, so wow. there are some really fantastic men out there who are willing to be um, really attentive and loving sexual partners. So it's feasible. It's achievable. You just have to talk about it. I love that. I have a couple questions about um, both of the stories you just mentioned. Sure. So like he clearly responded well to receiving the vibrator in the mail. Like yep. what was the follow-up conversation? <laughs> what happened next? I, so I definitely, like, I admitted to him, I was like, I was really nervous about that. Like, I wasn't sure if he would be offended. I wasn't sure, like, how that was going to go over. And he was just like, no, like, obviously, you have sexual needs and you know what works for you. Like, if we're going to have the kind of sex life that I want us to have, I have to pay attention to that. Like, this was great. It made my life a lot easier. And now <laughs> it's become, like, kind of a bit. So um I went to visit him recently and he, like, surprised me with a new even better vibrator and so oh, now wow. it's like are we just going to keep buying each other sex toys like is this the thing that we're doing now um and it's so cool and it's so awesome so the follow-up has become like kind of a really sweet thoughtful and like sex positive game that I never expected to get to play it's a blast that's um, so <laughs> yeah I recommend like surprise your partner with a sex toy see what happens that's hilarious and adorable yeah, it's great <laughs> Thanks. Oh, so oh, funny. Man. I love it. Um, I'd also like to ask about this really exceptional encounter you had with um, your last partner where you were finally able to be present. Um, yeah. You spoke a lot about the communication and trust and vulnerability that was present for both of you. Um what do you think was it about that particular moment in time that made the pieces fall into place? That is such a great question. Um, I don't even know what the context was. I think, I mean, I was with this person for a little over a year. We had some very significant ups and downs like the relationship was not smooth sailing um, but he cared a lot about how comfortable and safe I felt during sex and made that, that known often um, and loudly like really really wanted me to know that he was not going to harm me that he was not going to take advantage of me that we could stop at any time that he was going to pay attention to my face and 
at the time when I was seeing him, I was also talking through some previous um, traumas and therapy and traumatic memory loss is a very real experience. People who especially experience young and early traumas um, can take a really long time for those traumas to come back. And I got a trauma back over the course of our relationship that I had forgotten about that was um, a childhood sexual abuse arc, I guess you would call it. it, happened over a few months when I was like six or seven years old. And I had repressed it so much that it just went away. Um, and I got it back the year that I was with this ex and was able to talk to him about it and say like, whoa, I didn't even know that this has happened to me. And now like I have it again and I don't really know what to deal with it. And like, I'm not sure how this affects us moving forward. And we had had a lot of conversations about that specific incident over the prior few weeks. Um, and again, I had been talking to my therapist about it. And I think there was something about realizing that I had kind of a new trauma to contend with that I had put away, communicating it to this partner and having him respond, not like, oh, well, here's another thing that we have to deal with. And like, here's another obstacle to our sex life, but instead respond in a really loving, supportive way of like, wow, so interesting that you just got this back. Like he didn't invalidate at all. He didn't doubt it at all. He was just like, whoa, like traumatic memory loss is super interesting. I wonder what the context was that allowed you to get this back. And like, let me know what you need. If like some, something needs to change moving forward and was just really flexible and accepting of it. And I think it was like a few weeks later that we had this sexual experience where I was like, oh my God, I just got to be here that whole time. <laughs> this is amazing. And like, I cried and he cried and it was lovely. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. Um, so I think the experience of like a trauma disclosure as an adult that was received really, really well when in the past, some of the disclosures had resulted in, for instance, being forced to leave my school was pretty revolutionary to me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. He was such a delight. What a good man. Well, yep. I'm so glad that, the two of you were able to work together through that trauma. Um, yeah. It sounds to my ears like a lot of what helped you was um, having someone who was willing to do the work with you outside of the bedroom, in addition to mm -hmm. being present and doing the work in bed. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely an interesting tightrope to walk because I think one of the biggest failings I've had in my previous sexual relationships has been bringing my trauma into the relationship, putting it on the table and being like, let's unpack this. And my partners being very intimidated and sort of like, whoa, is this my job now? And the answer is it's not. And it wasn't. I think I've had people respond in a very savior way to the trauma of being like, I want to rescue you from this harm that you've experienced. And we're going to do this through our sex life, which like, I'm not a princess in a tower. I don't need rescuing. I've done the work to unpack my drama and I've done the work to figure out what I need. Um, with my current partner, that conversation has been a lot easier with my previous partner. I think I made my trauma history our responsibility when it was truly my responsibility. We were able to have really beautiful, really loving moments like that, which like I will always cherish and think are so, so important. Um, but I actually think that even though he was willing to do the work, 
he was willing to do the work. He wasn't obligated to do the work. Um, and for me, that was something that was really hard to come to terms with is as a survivor, you can really hope that people are going to want to do the work with you, but there's no guarantee. And unless you are very committed to taking on the responsibility of your healing, your sex life is going to suffer. It's going to be a lot harder if you put that healing on other people because you cannot control other people no matter how much you would like to control their reactions no matter how much you would like to control their dedication to your healing process that's out of your hands the only thing that you really have full agency over is your body your healing your coping however that looks to you um and so i think one of my bigger challenges with my sex life has been making my trauma an us problem, not a me problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to problematize it. I think that I'm really grateful for the experiences that I've had. They led me to this work. They led me to activism. They led me to survivor justice. They mean that I've been able to make an instrument of myself for the empowerment of other survivors, which I wouldn't have done if I didn't experience the trauma myself. I think I don't, yeah, I really just don't mean to problematize trauma. I think trauma survivors are an incredible boon to their communities. They bring a lot of empathy, compassion, and expertise of what healing looks like in a way that can have really significant impacts on like population wide health. But, um, it's definitely been a process for me to take responsibility as an individual for my sexual pleasure and sexual healing and not make it my partner's job to try to heal me. Mm -hmm. That's not the work that they need to do. That's the work that I need to do. I really, yeah. really appreciate the way you verbalize that. Um, and the way that you emphasize, um, personal responsibility for personal healing and personal trauma. Um, mm -hmm. because obviously, Individuals are not at fault for having trauma, but mm -hmm. we are all individually responsible for taking care of ourselves and our own behavior, um, and decidedly not the behavior of other, of others. So right. if someone is failing us on that front, that's really not their fault. Um, and obviously we all need to turn up for each other as best as we can, but right. I, I think that I think you're really onto something with um, <laughs> self-reliance um, as yeah. one's primary mode of healing. Um, well, I think as, as survivors too, like frequently we get kind of stuck when it comes to conceptualizing our own choices. I think part of that trauma is feeling like I had agency and choice taken away from me once and now I don't know how to have it. I'm not sure how to get it back. Um, so if, for instance, you're with someone who decides not to take that journey with you, who's sort of like, no, your trauma is your own to deal with. And like, I'm not taking that on. And that doesn't work for you. You still have a choice. Your choice is to not be with that person, to find someone. If, if it is really, really important to you that someone be on the train, maybe you have some more healing work to do for yourself, certainly. But your agency isn't gone. Your agency just changes shape. So choosing the partners that we have is a huge part of reasserting that agency for ourselves. And that, I think, is knowledge that I was missing for a long time. Like, you can't control other people's behavior. 
you can control the people that you surround yourself with. Um, so that's just a little caveat that I'll add there. If it is super important to you that you have someone who wants to, you know, sit down and talk about your trauma and try things like Tantra and try somatic healing with you and et cetera, then yeah, obviously you have to date someone who's on board with mm-hmm. those things. And if you're dating someone who's not on board with those things and they're really important to you, maybe that's not the right partner for you to go through your sexual healing journey with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that caveat as well. So I have one more personal question for you. Fantastic. So as you make known on the way you present yourself on social media, you self-identify as a radical Jewess. Yes. I am very curious about how growing up Jewish influenced your sexuality and the way you think about sex. Oh, that is such a good question. Um, I think when I was younger and my parents were still together, I was actually raised Catholic until I was seven years old. Mm. And then my parents, yes, um, I went to church. I got my first communion. I like prayed by my bed every night in my little white dress. Like religion came very easily to me. Um, it was something that I was really excited by. And then my parents got divorced when I was about seven and my dad got custody of my sisters and I, and my dad's parents were Jewish and my dad is Jewish. And I think there's something about the culture of reform and reconstructions to Judaism that is very academic, that is very liberal, um, and that tends to be just generally pretty socially progressive. Um, my father has a brother who's gay and I remember coming out to my dad when I was younger and he was such a champ. Like, obviously he already has a family member who's gay and out. And so it wasn't like something radical for him to deal with, but he took and takes my sexual and romantic relationships with women so seriously. He never treated it like a phase. He never treated it like something to minimize. And I think that's part of his like Jewish socialization that like the Jewish community and the queer community tend to get along pretty well. Not so much the Orthodox Jewish community. Like they, of course, the more intense you get with religion, uh, some of those dynamics tend to shift a little bit. Um, but the fact that he was raised in this pretty socially liberal, um, pretty academic con context within his Judaism, I think made a big difference. And to me, having a Jewish family who's so open and accepting of different identities, um, different choices of expression has made a really huge difference in my sexual comfort. And my dad also being a single dad had a, a lot to do with it. So he had to you know, be the primary parent that my sisters and I went to when we were getting our periods for the first time. I didn't know what to do when we had to have OBGYN appointments. Um, he wound up being very much the mama bear caretaker um, and shifting some of the gender roles that have been ascribed in our society of like, this is what moms do and this is what dads do. My dad is like beast mama bear. Um, and I remember the day I turned 16, the day of my 16th birthday, he was like, you're 16 now birth control and just posed it as a question of like, okay, you're the age of consent in our state. I'm aware that you've had partners. Let's, let's have this conversation. Um, and I'm not sure what that conversation looks like for folks who are not Jewish and don't have this like really liberal social context. And I'm, I am speaking very specifically of like reform and reconstructionist Judaism. Um, 
my grandparents were more conservative in their Judaism, but my dad's generation is certainly not. So I would say it was very much a combination of the culture of Judaism, my dad being a single parent, and um, and just kind of the the liberalism that tends to go hand in hand with like reform Jewish communities that impacted my ability to safely explore sex, to explore sex when I was on birth control, had access to condoms, like that made a really big difference. Um, and being able to embrace my sexual identity and know that the sex life that I had with women was going to be taken seriously, um, wasn't going to be minimized, wasn't going to be shrugged off or turned away from, um, really made me feel more embedded in my sexual orientation and more like I can claim this as mine. I don't have to worry about rejection from my family. And that's a huge privilege that I am deeply aware is a privilege. Not everyone has a family situation that they can feel safe with in terms of exploring and embracing their sexual orientation. So props to my dad and my family and for folks out there listening and feel like they need a family who's going to support their sexual orientation, their transitions, their gender expression, et cetera. I'm your family now. <laughs> Reach out to me. I've got you. Oh, I love that. That's so fascinating. I have had other individuals on the show who came from a Mormon background or an otherwise um, conservative branch of Christianity that really complicated their uh, relationships to sexuality or queerness. And it's just really fantastic to hear about someone who comes from a religious background that was very empowering and yeah. protecting. It's definitely, I mean, I think it's certainly a mixed bag. There are things that my family handled beautifully well about my sexuality, um, like my queerness. And then there are things that my family really struggled with, like how to contend with a trauma history. And it's really great that it's 2019 now, and there are resources out there for people who have experienced trauma. There are resources for the parents of, you know, victims of childhood sexual abuse. There are resources for um, siblings. So I really encourage um, folks who have a survivor in your life to access those resources. At the time that I was experiencing my traumas, my family didn't have those. They didn't know... Um, what kinds of therapy survivors really can utilize. The two that I would recommend are CBT and DBT, cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, just as a, as a shout out, they're evidence-based and um, they give you homework. And essentially it's just if you want to actually heal and not necessarily just go to talk therapy where you're reliving trauma again and again and again, CBT and DBT are great. Um, but those are things that, my family didn't really have access to when I was a kid that we know a lot better now. So I'm also really fortunate that my Jewish family has facilitated conversations with me as a, a young adult about what my trauma was like as a child, as um, a teenager at boarding school, and then that one partner that I had in college. Um, they've been really open about continuing the conversation because they acknowledge they didn't have the resources to handle it well when I was a child. Um, and we've been able to build some really um, pro-survivor support into our family structure, which has been really, really beautiful, but was not the case when I was younger. And so there, there are pros and cons. You know, every families yeah. make mistakes sometimes. I'm really lucky that my family has, like, 
owned up to what they acknowledge were mistakes and worked really hard in my adulthood to facilitate the conversations that we missed when I was younger. So there are resources out there. Families can do a much better job in 2019 than they could in 2008. So I encourage folks who are listening to figure out what those resources are for you and your community. Um, and if you're not sure, you can also reach out to me and I can send them along to you. Wonderful. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been an hour and a half of just like pure excitement and just an absolute (laughs) honor for me to get to interview you. Thank Um, you, Robin. Yeah, I'm really, really thrilled to be here. I appreciate your time and you're doing really important work. I mean, talking about not only sex, but what makes sex good, positive, and enjoyable, I think is a necessary conversation for us to be having right now. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor. Um, do you have any closing words about what makes good sex good or just advice you'd like to give before you go? The biggest piece of advice I can give is scrap the scripts, the scripts that tell you what sex is supposed to look like, the scripts that tell you what kind of sex is normal, what you're supposed to or allowed to enjoy, what your partner is supposed to or allowed to look like. Anything, anytime you're having sex or you're engaging in a sexual experience and you hear that little voice that says, this isn't normal, unless you are in pain, you're feeling upset, you're feeling traumatized or you're uncomfortable, throw that voice away. It is not helping you. It is an impediment to fully embodied and diverse, pleasurable experiences. I think sexual scripting is one of the things our society does so, so wrong in limiting our access to pleasure and joy and play. Um, And I really, I look so fondly back on my first sexual experience with Lindsay even I, I didn't know what I was doing and that's what made it kind of lovely mm-hmm. was we didn't have that script pressure. We didn't have the, those social ideas telling us what we were quote unquote supposed to do and not supposed to do. Um, and it is one of the most authentic sexual experiences I've ever been able to have. So if folks are seeking authenticity, throw the script voice away. It is not helping you. I do have one quick question. So Absolutely. with your first sexual experience with Lindsay, Did you think of it as sex at the time, or was that a word that you added on to that experience later? I did not think, that's such a great point. I did not think of it as sex at the time. I knew we were doing more than we had previously done. Um, I knew that these were things that were new for me, but as a young woman growing up in the early 2000s, queer sex was not always defined as sex unless it was penetrative, and that is not what we were doing. Um, so I had to validate my first sexual experience later as a young adult and say, no, the sex that Lindsay and I had counted. It counted for me. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. And I feel like a lot of young queer women had that experience of, is this sex? What do I really call this? It doesn't follow what I've been told sex looks like. Um, so reasserting that for myself and acknowledging it as, no, that is what I think of as like my first sex experience has also been a way for me to reclaim and live in and acknowledge my bisexual, pansexual, queer identities. Great question. Thank you.
Great answer. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Katie, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so very much for your time for this long, long interview. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your time as well. I, yeah, it is absolutely a delight to be here and to be able to talk about these things so openly. So thank you for creating space. It's really important. You're welcome. It is. It's what I got to (laughs) do. Absolutely. All right. Well, I hope to talk to you again soon and I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you. You as well. Take care, Robin. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Peak, which is hosted and produced by me, Robin. Our theme music was written by Johnny Manchild of Johnny Manchild and the Poor Bastards. You can follow us on Facebook or at our website, thepeak.blueberry.net. That's thepeak.blubrry.net. If you have a question or comment about anything we talked about today, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, send me an email at thepeakpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.